know, Ireland got this visit by Lee Chong. We got the visa-free travel. We got the beef. It's not clear to me what we gave in return. <laughs> you know, presumably something, or presumably we're going to be asked for something later. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Perspectives with Nilo. I'm your host, Nilo Sullivan. If you are new to the podcast, you might like to check out some of our past episodes, which you can find on our blog site at pwnilo.com or by searching for Perspectives with Nilo wherever you get your podcasts. In mid-January, Chinese Premier Li Qiang paid a two-day state visit to Ireland, meeting with President Higgins and Taoiseach Varadkar. And while Irish officials were keen to emphasise the 45th anniversary of Ireland-China relations, little was said publicly about China's human rights abuses and their ongoing aggression in the Taiwan Strait and South China Sea. And although Thornishta and Minister for Foreign Affairs Michal Martin previously echoed support for the EU's decision to de-risk trade with China, the top message from the Irish government would appear to be that the economy takes precedence and that Ireland remains committed to free global trade. My guest in this episode is Alexander Dukalski. Associate Professor in the School of Politics and International Relations at University College Dublin and Director of the UCD Centre for Asia-Pacific Research. I sat down with him recently to discuss the takeaways from Li Chiang's visit, how Ireland is strategically equipped to engage with China and specifically the apparent lack of China competency when it comes to dealing with the Chinese Communist Party. Alex, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. Uh, so maybe to start off, uh, Chinese Premier Li Chang came to Ireland for a two-day state visit in uh, mid-January. He met with uh, President Higgins and uh, Taoiseach Lior Varadkar, and it was the first time such a high-ranking Chinese official visited Ireland since 2015, Ireland being uh, one of three countries on his itinerary, as, as I understand it. So before we talk about the visit and the takeaways from it, uh, can I begin by asking you, who is Li Chang? And what's his background? Yeah, so Li Chang is the number two in the Chinese political system. Of course, Xi Jinping is number one, and he holds all the most important titles. Uh, Li Chang is the premier, and he's the head of government. Uh, but of course, in China, the party is uh, the government is controlled by the party. So he, he, his more important role is is as a, an elite party member. I think it's worth noting that in previous administrations in China, the number two in command had a little bit more autonomy, a little bit more leeway. So uh, in the Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao administration, Wen Jiabao was number two, and he had quite a lot of uh, authority over economic matters. Um, and that was a period of more of kind of collective, a little bit more collective leadership. Fast forward to today, and that's very different. I mean, Li Chung as number two, he, he really is... Uh, subordinate in every way to Xi Jinping. He's loyal to Xi Jinping. He's long been a Xi Jinping loyalist. You know, in fact, he got plaudits for um, implementing Xi's zero COVID policy in Shanghai in a, I mean, incredibly draconian <laughs> matter, uh, manner by, by locking down kind of millions of, uh, of people. And so, you know, he, he very much is uh, a Xi Jinping loyalist. And what would you say were the notable observations uh, from his visit to Ireland last January? I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, the security around it, the, the meeting, the people he had meetings with, the media coverage, and uh, if there were any public protests and that kind of thing. As far as I know, there weren't any public protests. Uh, maybe there were a few scattered ones here and there, but there wasn't anything major so far as I know. 
he met with uh, the with the Taoiseach. He met with the president. Uh, he met with um, Chinese business leaders, I think, in, in, in Ireland as well. And the two big announcements that came out of it, uh, you know, this was, these things are pretty well scripted, right? Yeah. So uh, the, the big announcements that came out of it were visa-free travel for Irish citizens to China for 15 days. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what the designations of those are. It's certainly not research and journalism. <laughs> it's, it's things like tourism and business, right? Um and a resumption of uh, beef, selling beef to China, which was on uh, suspended because of a, a case of, uh, of BSE. So uh, those two were announcements, yeah. were, the, were the big announcements from, from the Chinese side. Yeah. And how about, uh, you know, press access or press conferences and uh, any other notable kind of things like that? As far as I know, there were no press conferences. I mean, there were set kind of set pieces, you know, with, uh, with President Higgins and... and uh, Prime Minister Varadkar, and uh, but no, as far as I know, there were no no press conferences. I mean, the Chinese state obviously is not super transparent, <laughs> and, uh, nor nor open in dealing with journalists. So that's it's not a huge surprise, I suppose. Why do you think you know the second in command of a country of 1.3 billion people? Uh, why does he choose to visit a country like Ireland? You know, a population less than that of most uh, Chinese cities. And maybe to, to split it into two questions, you know, what's in it for China and what's in it for Ireland? Yeah. So why Ireland is an interesting one. You know, we were all asking ourselves this: <laughs> why, why come here? You know, he came after uh, visiting uh, Davos and uh, Switzerland. Uh, came to Ireland. So I don't think it's completely coincidental that he visited two militarily neutral uh, European states, uh, both, of course, important economies in their own ways. Uh, I think China likes that Ireland is not a member of NATO, Mm -hmm. is militarily, you know, is militarily neutral. um, And, um, and that, you know, Chinese officials have made or Chinese visitors, I should say, have made comments uh, that suggest that Ireland's kind of post-colonial history sort of resonates with 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 China, and so I think they try to argue that there's sort of a shared worldview there. Um, I'm not sure that's a hundred percent of a successful strategy on their mm-hmm. part, but I, I I have seen them try to do that on on numerous occasions. So. I think that helps explain a little bit the Irish, uh, the Chinese interest in Ireland. I mean, not to mention, of course, the obvious reasons that it's the only English-speaking member of the European Union now. There are a lot of headquarters of major companies here, you know, including Chinese companies. And so it's a big economic hub for not just China, but lots of states. So there are those kinds of obvious reasons. But I think there, there are also some underlying kind of political and ideological reasons as well. And in, in, in terms of Ireland, we, we are hearing Ireland has a lot of trade with China um, and, you know, is maybe uh, pretty high up there in, in the EU in terms of the top trading partners. Uh, what's in it for Ireland trading with China or, or engaging with China? So China, uh, Ireland does trade a lot with China, but I think it's worth putting it into perspective that we trade a lot less with China than we do the United States than we do with big European economies. Yes. So China's still, you know, it's, it's not like our number one trading partner or anything like that. It, it's, it's farther down the list. So uh, that said, I mean, it's a sizable trade partner, but it's, it's not dominant. Uh, so far as I can tell, the big export, uh, the, the big product that we're exporting to China is microchips now. Although there seems to be some questions about this in terms of whether this is 
related to Intel, the big the big computer company's internal kind of supply chain. <laughs> and so, are we getting sort of export, um, you know, credit on our export sheet for uh, moving products for Intel moving products within its supply chains? Uh, so I'm not sure how significant that is or how that plays into uh, into our export strategy, but that that seems to be what's happening because it's it's massive relative to other products. Certainly, the Irish government seemed to play up the agri products export. Uh, I guess because of the size of the Chinese market, whether or not uh, you know last last figures I saw was that agriculture or agri products were a pretty you know single digit percentage yeah. of the total volume of exports to China. Yeah, yeah it's relatively small. You know, of course, um, you know, as in all sectors, I mean, interest groups are, you know, have, have, their job is to get their products, uh, you know, highlighted by the government and, and uh, you know, prioritized for export and things. So I suspect there's a bit of that going on as well. Okay. Uh, many analysts and academics who, who study China have warned about the dangers of engaging with authoritarian regimes, including yourself in, in your book, Making the World Safe for Dictatorship. And you mentioned in a tweet after Li Qiang's visit on this topic that the most important but least discussed takeaway from Li Qiang's visit to Ireland was that we need to invest in serious independent expertise on China. For example, you know, we have very good familiarity with uh, the US and how the US works, and we can can make very well-informed decisions on engaging with the U.S. We can also, of course, criticize the U.S. Uh, uh, pretty pretty freely. Um, but as you said in your tweet, when it comes to China, we're pretty close to flying without radar. And you said this should have been fixed 15 years ago. So uh, why do you say that? And what are the risks of engaging with China? Yeah, so I do think it's really critical that we in Ireland build up our knowledge base about China and expertise about China. You know, the example I sometimes share is that in the, you know, around U.S. election time, you know, you have, uh, you know, everyone in Ireland pretty much follows this really, really closely. They know the different counties in Ohio and Georgia that are that are in play. They, they could probably name 15 or 20 uh, American politicians, you know. They know what big issues are, are at play. And I think most of, uh, of us here, you know, we would struggle to name a, a Chinese politician beyond Xi Jinping, really. Um, and that's not, uh, that's not a criticism. It's just that the cultural links between the United States and Ireland are so deep and so broad. Everybody has visited and everybody has family there and vice versa and so on and so forth. And so that means that expertise when it comes to the existing superpower in, in Ireland is, is really, really strong. The rising superpower, we we know a lot less. We we lack a lot of language expertise. You know, we we don't, uh, um, you know, we, we don't have independent expertise to advise on the political system. You know, some other European states, Sweden, for example, has a national China center, which is basically a research um, entity. I think it's partly funded by the foreign ministry, but it's independence. You know. And they produce, you know, high-quality research on China-Sweden relations, not only for policymakers but also for the public, um, for the public discourse, basically, so that people can can be informed about a really, really important country. And we just don't have anything like that here. And I think the case, you know, to me, a symptom of the problem is that. Uh, you know, I often get asked to do media interviews and things like this about China, and I was asked during Li Chang's visit by several outlets, mm-hmm. and that's really a problem because I'm not actually a, 
I don't focus on China really in my work. I focus on authoritarian states and take a comparative approach and everything. So really the fact that I get called for these things is is a symptom of a bigger problem that we don't have that independent expertise uh, to to help guide not only policymakers but public discussion when it comes to China. And so there are risks of engagement. I think for a long time, um, not just Ireland, but Europe more generally, saw China as an economy. And that's kind of it, a place to make money, a big market, big emerging market, and didn't really understand or appreciate, perhaps, um, the politics, that it, that it had politics and that it had rising ambitions. And now I think that's changing uh, in, in a variety of ways. Uh, and we can talk if you want, about how the Russian invasion of Ukraine catalyzed, I think, some rethinking in Europe about dependencies and things. But but to me, that's a, that's a really crucial gap in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And what do you think is holding back the Irish government in investing in this type of expertise? You know, I'm not even necessarily sure it has to be government, you know, led, although, although there's a role for that as well. Um, I mean, I think a long time ago, my university made a huge mistake in building its China studies program around the Confucius Institutes, um, which is not, not strictly independent of the Chinese states. Um, and so I think what that does is it basically, uh, it, it makes it harder to argue for independent investment in Chinese uh, expertise, because administrators can always say, well, we have this we have this other institute here. We don't need to invest in, in anything else. So it, it takes away the rationale for independent investment. And there's kind of a um, uh, path dependency, I suppose, to, to, to that. Do you, do you think, like, I mean, anybody who's um, watching the media or taking a little bit of interest in reading about China will understand how the party controls everything? Like, do you think there's a naivety in the government, in the Irish government's understanding of China, uh, given all that's written in the media and, you know, in books and literature and everything about how the one party state operates? I'm not sure about the government. I think generally, well, different parts of the government might have different views on on this, but I think we sometimes make them a, a kind of a mirroring mistake where we assume China's, let's say, Ministry of Education is the same as our Ministry of Education, right? Staffed by career civil servants who will serve different political parties and where priorities uh, change based on uh, on, um, on elections. And that's just not the way it works in China. I mean, it's the, the state is controlled by the party. And so really, when you're talking to state organizations like or ministries, you, you really are dealing with the party. Um, and I don't think that people appreciate that probably as much as they should or, or have thought through what it means, uh, particularly in kind of the knowledge, uh, knowledge production sectors like education, right? I mean, we had the, um, the agreement to source Chinese language teachers for, um, for Irish schools, you know, from, from the Chinese government, right? which with a different government partner might be, that might be a reasonable approach, actually, because they know, you know, they have um, networks to advertise and so on and so forth. But when it's a single party authoritarian state with a very firm view on certain uh, academic issues, to me, that becomes very problematic. So 
I don't know if it's naivete or lack of knowledge or or what it is, but it's it's certainly there. <laughs> last uh, run last summer, uh, we had a podcast interview with uh, Alex Davy of Merricks. Uh, we were talking about the European Think Tank Network on China's report. And uh, I believe Alex had spoken with uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs and at the time they had told him that they had 2.4 officers in the Irish government working on China, one with Mandarin. It seems very, very limited to uh, to have just 2.4 people working on such a large country and, you know, government like China. Yeah, I mean, of course, the reality is that Mandarin language skills are are pretty... um, uh, less represented here than, of course, English, but also German, French, Spanish, and, you know, languages that are uh, have been taught for longer in in, uh, in schools. So, you know, that's certainly, if that's the case, that's a pretty low number. Um, you know, the, the, the good thing, I suppose, is that there are various European think tanks that people in the government can look to for, for high quality research. But again, we don't have anything Ireland specific and maybe we're not big enough for that, but it seems to me that there ought to be some kind of room for a pipeline of people who are trained in um, Chinese politics and society, again, independent of, of uh, Chinese state organizations that can, um, yeah, provide advice, even if it's on an ad hoc basis mm-hmm. to, um, to those entities. It has been reported in the media um, in Ireland that uh, there are formal Irish political elites involved in a pro-PRC, non-political think tank. But when it comes to the European Think Tank Network on China report, other than the an Irish employee of uh, German think tank Americs, it appears that there are no independent think tanks uh, who focus on China. Uh, do you know if that's still correct? And again, this is kind of to your earlier point of just the lack of a pipeline to create this? As far as I know, yes. I mean, there are some groups that um, are business, you know, pro, I suppose you could say pro-business groups that um, want to establish closer business ties between China and Ireland. Um, And I think they produce some reports and research sometimes, but I, you know, there's an interest there already in a particular in a particular subset of the relationship. And I think that might also lead to some blind spots in other parts <laughs> of the relationship. So uh, so there are some of those organizations uh, kicking around. But but no, I mean, there's no, you know, no group that has, uh, no group in Ireland anyway that's produced a, a primer on Ireland-China relations or Ireland-Taiwan relations or anything else. Um, you know, it's, it's all sort of... Um, yeah, it's the, the foundation's very weak, I would say. I wonder if, if we are seeing, because of this lack of expertise, if we are seeing Ireland's position towards China becoming more favourable or maybe less manoeuvrable over time. Um, and there's kind of three th- questions I wanted to ask you about with, with that in mind. And the first one is, in, in 2018, there was a visit to China by Ireland's then Foreign Minister Simon Coveney. And on that visit, he was reported as saying that Ireland wants to replace the UK as China's trusted friend in Europe after Brexit. And then, of course, last November, we had the Thornish Dan Minister for Foreign Affairs, Michal Martin. He had a four-day visit to China. And although before the visit, he had spoken about de-risking from China, after the visit, he seemed more convinced by China's message that globalization is irreversible. And then, of course, we had uh, Chinese Premier Li Qiang's visit to Ireland in January. Do you think these events 
um, signify a warming of sorts on the China-Ireland engagement? You know, I think the Martin's speech about de-risking and being a little bit more skeptical with regard to China was an interesting speech uh, for, for a variety of reasons. I mean, one is that, so far as I know, sitting here on the outside of government, a speech like that wouldn't come out of nowhere. You know, it would have been carefully planned and probably secured um, buy-in or at least advanced knowledge from other government uh, ministries and, and stakeholders. So again, I don't know for sure, but I mean, that's that's my read on it. Um, and so that looks to me like there's a kind of a constituency for, for that kind of approach. Of course, it also aligns with the European Union's approach. And you see this, I think, sometimes with Ireland's stance towards China, which is it sort of launders the really difficult questions through the European Union, you know, issues like human rights or uh, repression of minorities or economic coercion or things like that. It kind of deals with those through the European Union, which strategically makes some sense because the European Union is a lot bigger and more powerful and you might be able to push back more effectively getting that weight kind of behind you. So I can understand the rationale for that. When it comes to the bilateral relationship, I think we tend to be uh, much more warm in our language and friendly in our language and, you know, raise human rights issues behind closed doors always. You know, I've spoken with several people who have been involved in those kinds of meetings and they sort of say, we raise our concerns with China on human rights and they sort of say, okay. <laughs> We disagree, and now let's move on. You know, it's sort of a pro forma thing, nearly. So, you know, I think uh, I think that's kind of the the stasis that it's settled into. Okay. Maybe the second item I want to ask about in, in this regard to Ireland's relationship with China is something that came up uh, at the tail end of Li Chiang's visit, and that is whether Ireland's position on Taiwan might have subtly changed. And up to the Li Chiang visit, my understanding uh, was that Ireland supported the One China policy but was ambiguous on its position on Taiwan. Then shortly after the visit, uh, Chinese state media, CGTN, released an article claiming that Leo Varadkar said, and I quote from the article, that his country will always abide by the one China principle and hopes that China will achieve peaceful reunification at an early date. After this, Varadkar was forced to clarify his position when questioned by RTE, and he said, and I quote again, I reaffirmed our policy, which is the one China policy, and that we recognize that Taiwan is part of China. And while we don't have diplomatic or political links with Taiwan, we continue to have economic and cultural links. So again, he mentioned there Taiwan is part of China. First time, as I said, uh, for me, he hearing a government official say that. So apart from the fact that the Irish government has chosen to take the side of an authoritarian dictatorship rather than the side of the, the democratic island of Taiwan that recently celebrated its eighth presidential election and was congratulated by uh, many democracies around the world. Unfortunately, Ireland wasn't one of them. Um, do you think that Ireland has uh, subtly changed its position on Taiwan because maybe of potentially warming relations, or that this, again, is uh, more of a lack of expertise or something else? Well, the words that CGTN reported there, they just don't even sound like Fred Card to me anyway, or they don't really sound like any non-Chinese politician. <laughs> so it seems to me... I don't, you know, we may never know for sure, but it seems to me like this was a pretty straightforward case of trying to put words in the mouth of a foreign leader. Uh, 
just to kind of see if you can get away with it. And this this wouldn't be the first and certainly won't be the last time that Chinese state media tries this, you know. Um, you know, the, the origin, organizational origins of that, I'm not sure, but it's certainly pretty, you know, fairly common. So, you know, his clarification was even a little bit more, as you know, kind of... Uh, interesting because of that added on phrase that Taiwan is a part of China. Now, uh, Yvonne Murray from, from RTE did, did an excellent, uh, article about, okay, well, did Ireland's Taiwan policy change? What does it mean? What's the difference between the one China principle and the one China policy? Of course, the one China principle is Beijing's view on, on things that Taiwan is a part of China and needs to kind of reincorporate in scare quotes, uh, you know, to China. Um, and the one China policy is ambiguous and lots of different countries interpret it different ways, but is basically the idea that uh, foreign governments have relations with only, government-to-government relations only with Beijing, yeah. right? which, as Vrad Carnota, doesn't preclude other kinds of relations. Right? Um, and so the answer of whether Ireland's Taiwan policy has changed is, I, don't, I still don't think we know actually, if it has changed. The government spokesperson, uh, unnamed government spokesperson after after this, this episode, um, said that it ha- hasn't changed, okay? Um, and, you know, as a practical matter, that, that might be true. But I wonder about this phrase of Taiwan as a part of China. I hadn't heard that really in the Irish, uh, uh, you know, stance um, thus far. You know, I suppose it raises the question, you know, we, you know, Ireland got this visit by Lee Chang. We got the visa-free travel. We got the beef. It's not clear to me what we gave in return. <laughs> you know, Pres- presumably something, or presumably we're going to be asked for something later. <laughs> but, but it, uh, so far as I know, it's it's not clear what exactly we we gave up in return. You know, it was a charm offensive, but you know, there there might be a quid pro quo at some point. And the third question uh, in, regard to the, in regard to this Ireland-China relations um, is how China continues to back Russia in the war in Ukraine. Uh, but Irish politicians seem to not be aware of that or just I- ignore it. Recently, I saw uh, an Irish politician, an MEP in my own uh, jurisdiction, uh, you know, criticise Viktor Orban for attempting to block the recent EU 50 billion euro aid uh, of uh, to Ukraine. Uh, he called it uh, an affront to democracy. Yet uh, here's the Irish government and the president of Ireland delighted to mark uh, 45 years of diplomatic relations uh, between Ireland and China, while China has consistently stood by Russia on Ukraine, failing to condemn the invasion as illegal. Recently, uh, Reuters reported that uh, China's new defense minister, Dong Jun, told his Russian counterpart that China will fully support Russia on the Ukrainian issue. They call it an issue, not an invasion. And we also, of course, will have seen in the media how Putin and Xi talk about a limitless partnership. So it seems like a crazy disconnect that, you know, here's uh, an ally of Russia who you are building close relationships with. Uh, and on the other hand, here's Russia invading Ukraine, uh, you know, a, a, an action which you have condemned outright. This seems like just as I say, very difficult to understand. Can you help us understand where that disconnect is or what the thinking is here? Well, I think some of it stems from China's very carefully calibrated fake neutrality on on Ukraine and, and Russia. I mean, publicly, it you know, it 
says we don't want anything, you know, we're not a party to the conflict. We urge all parties to peacefully negotiate, yada, yada, yada. Um, of course, they tried to put out a peace plan last year, yeah. and the first plank of the peace plan was respect for territorial integrity, which, of course, raises the question right away of, well, okay, this, you know, this, is, uh, this falls apart uh, right away. So I th- but I think publicly, you know, China has not, um, ha- has, has a carefully calibrated neutrality. Domestically, in terms of its domestic propaganda, I mean, it tells its citizens that basically the Russian line, right, on, on the conflict. Um, and privately, as you mentioned, it, it lends support to Russian officials. Economically, it, Russia's trade has really reoriented towards China in the last two years. I mean, it was happening post-2014 already, post-Crimea, but it's really accelerated in the last couple of years um, as uh, Chinese um, as the Chinese economy basically acts as an off-ramp to to the Russian uh, to, to Russia's pivot away from Europe. You know, all that said, though, look, China hasn't sent weapons to Russia. At least, I mean, you see stories every now and again of some company having some component that's in a Russian weapon. But I mean, as far as we know, I mean, it, it hasn't uh, uh, sent weapons or things. So it hasn't supported Russia as much as it very much could. So, so, so that's that's part of it. Um, so I think that calibrated, cultivated public image of neutrality um, helps. Yeah, it helps lend kind of a plausible deniability to um, to China's kind of tacit support for the conflict. I think European politicians and I think some U.S. politicians and you know leaders as well have tried to get China to pressure Russia to stop or to. And I just I think that's a fool's errand. I mean, China's very happy if Russia d- distracts the United States and Europe, so is division in in Europe. You know, you even see uh, support for Ukraine becoming a domestic political issue in the United States, which any kind of polarization in the U.S. is China's happy with that. So, so I think they they sit back and and look at this and say, okay, so long as we don't um, get snared up in any sanctions that that come, uh, you know, have come as a result of the war, um, and so long as our companies are kind of compliant to the letter with those sanctions. The war is working out pretty well for them, I think, actually. So maybe to, to kind of wrap up then, uh, Alex, what do you think the future holds for Ireland uh, and Ireland-China relations? Uh, given the government's behavior, do you think uh, Ireland is somewhat of an economic hostage of China? Or do you think maybe EU safeguards will help shield us from all of that? I definitely don't think we're an economic hostage. Uh, we, you know, we haven't yet had a, a big political argument with China in which there have been sanctions put on one of our sectors or something like that, a la, you know, Lithuania in, in, 20, uh, in 2020. Um, so we, we haven't gone down that road yet. <laughs> we could, actually. And I think that's why I harp on about um, about the need to cultivate more expertise and to take a... Um, a more informed view on our relations with China because the reality is that certain sectors, it doesn't have to be an aggregate economy, but certain sectors that become reliant on on China um, are vulnerable to economic coercion. And they then become kind of domestic pro-China lobby groups 
when there is a political uh, or diplomatic disagreement between China and that state. So I think we need to be a little bit careful, but I wouldn't be uh, I wouldn't be sounding alarm bells uh, just yet, but I think we should uh, we should invest in that expertise and and, uh, and knowledge building. Do you think, uh, for example, Ireland will join the BRI? I mean, the Chinese embassy in Ireland has been running adverts in Irish media promoting the BRI. Is that on the horizon, do you think? I don't think so, to be honest. I mean, you know, the the Belt and Road, it sort of feels like it's run its course a little bit. Um, You know, there are some countries that have, um, you know, that really went, you know, nearly all in, you know, Pakistan and Laos and some others. But the ones that are farther away, you know, European states that are involved, I mean, their, their involvement's fairly peripheral. Um, there's also different levels of joining. You know, you can be really deeply involved or you can just sign an MOU and kind of have a project here or there. So, you know, I, 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 can't, I can't see that happening, but could be wrong. All right. Well, Alex, uh, it's been a fascinating yeah. conversation with you. Thank you very much yeah. for your time. Really appreciate it. No worries. Thank you. That's Alexander Dukalski, Associate Professor in the School of Politics and International Relations at University College Dublin and Director of the UCD Centre for Asia-Pacific Research, speaking with me recently. My sincere thanks to Alex for sharing his valuable insights and taking the time to chat with us on Perspectives with Nilo. Trade between Ireland and China has increased significantly in recent years to about 40 billion euro in two-way goods and services. There are more than 40 Chinese companies in Ireland concentrated mainly in IT, finance and aviation leasing. And Ireland has established more than 500 foreign invested enterprises in China. This increasing focus on trade supported by pro-PRC business groups and coupled with the deficit of China expertise has raised concerns among many analysts and academics about the dangers this poses to Ireland's values and interests. We've placed links to additional information on this and topics covered in this episode in the Dive Deeper section of our blog. You might also like to check out our previous ETNC report episode in which we spoke with Alexander Davy of Merricks on this topic. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we'd really appreciate a like, share or follow on our social media pages which are linked on our blog site at pwnilo.com and thanks in advance for your support. But that's where we leave it for now. Until the next time, thank you for listening. Slánix Benacht.